0: Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unreal. and season four is unrelated thoughts on being an unruly adoptee. I'm thinking of the name of this episode is fatherhood. Currently I'm father of three cats and one human. The language of adoption blends children and animals in cultural ways that become increasingly painful to witness as I grew into consciousness. You know, I um, mentioned a few movies along the way, The Ten Commandments. Movies like Warlock 3 in 1999 and The Truman Show in 1998 are sort of heavy-handed, wielding adoptee like a weapon of sorts against the body of the protagonist. That Chris overcomes the challenges set before her in that film Is what makes the film itself redemptive Instead becoming a mirror that calls out to the cultural force it looks to complicate and It seeks complication in its narrative Warlock 3 does not exploit adoption or the adoptee central to its narrative um, But the same cannot be said for artifacts from my childhood And possibly yours like Cabbage Patch Kids and Pound Puppies Yeah, these toy brands and their attendant-mediated presences were far more insidious. They put a nearly invisible point on the very essence of adoptee neurosis. Adoptees are never all the way in, as far as family is concerned. That's part of that identity trauma I keep circling back around. I mean, even if the family is fully accepting, there's a film if you will, a call, a lining that prevents true energetic interplay between the adoptee and the world they find themselves within. And cultural signposting done at the consumer level reinforces these complicating rhetorics. We are not blood. At best, we are part of the nuclear family for a while, like the cat, the dog. We are viewed as siblings to the immediate family. But often the extended family shows no love, no bonds, no reaching out to make one comfortable all differences treated as deviance from familial traditional norms, particularly within social performance of religious practice. Uh, as an adoptee, I practiced invisibility and struggled to keep from being caught while pursuing my interests. Searching for my biological parents was a secret I kept locked within the other adolescent secrets I learned to keep within my evangelical home. Adoptees that are brought into evangelical homeschooling households that perform corporal punishments for infractions in religious education are at best a form of child abuse unmitigated by law and in many cases are true horror shows of mental, emotional, and physical abuse, sometimes graduating into sexual abuse and medical neglect. And or... Uh, when I think about the larger scale of experience, considered historically against a time when women are forced to reproduce and their children are then moved into adoption, they're being sorted into these environments and will continue to arrive in these spaces unless there are actions taken to change the laws around adoption. Pound puppies and cabbage patch kids are a mask, a layer, a plasticine billboard that allows horrors to transpire behind their iconic flatness, uh, in the shadows of mundane day-to-day child rearing. Hmm. I mean, adoption is an industry and needs to be seen as such without the myths and marketing of religious non-profiteers who administer adoption. When stories are told of adoptees who lash out at their adopters, ask why the adoptee is struggling. Uh, When an adoption is done, on the best of terms, without a concerted effort on the part of all members of the family, the adoptee is not likely to bond with anyone. There is no sense of innate belonging. And as trauma becomes complex, compounded, and an adoptee becomes more withdrawn, rewarding the adoptee's efforts to connect by eliminating all possible social connections outside the family sphere is not only reaffirming the unwanted, unloved, unrelated narrative loops that are part of the adoptee's core anxieties. Um, But it is actively diminishing the adoptee's humanness, identity. It is that identity trauma re-traumatized and re-traumatized. I I love Warlock 3 because the phrase, a child of the call... An adoptee confronted with this earth-shattering inheritance of secret parentage was able to find the strength to create her own new path forward in life, like a way forward that integrated her past without discharging it. She was not the villain or point of evil inflection. Like in The Ring, the 2002 American film, or Orphan, the 2009 film, in Warlock 3*, the ritual debasement of the adoptee by her peers dramatizes this institutional force of the adoption industry when she replays this role of an identity being erased and replaced with some dark energy at the demand of the patriarchal antagonist adoption is best explained as a horror story because it is a repression of shame and guilt it is a ghost story more like the abandoned the 2006 horror film set in russia than it is flirting with disaster the free-willing romp across America asking random people, are you my mommy? So, life itself is played out against a backdrop of death. We are all secrets, survivors of tragedy, near misses, lucky to be here. We are all, all of this. My life is strange and surreal, only if all other lives are discounted. We are all the survivors, the inheritors, of those who couldn't be here, who didn't make it. I do not know how I came to be, but I am grateful that I stuck around. Uh, The question of belonging has changed into an answer once I was able to start my own family. Hmm. Now I guess my son, my, my wife, they are who I belong to, and in belonging, I was able to start finding peace enough for Hope to visit, for me to notice Hope in the box of Pandora's. The language of adoption blends children and animals in cultural ways that become increasingly painful to witness as I grew into consciousness. So, you know, movies like Warlock 3 and The Truman Show are heavy-handed. But Chris overcomes the challenges in that film and makes it redemptive. All difference that we're dealing with through all of these things is something that I don't know I finally understood once I found my wife so I I, it's not a matter of dependency my healing as an adoptee began when I found my wife who helped me become at peace with my own identity I guess so I found her in Troy New York and it took months of conversations before I became convinced I could trust her first with my cat and soon my heart and my secrets right Um, At that point, I'd already established contact with my birth mother and had moved what I thought of as beyond my Truman Show period to where I didn't trust anyone in my life. So she helped me find a way back to normalcy, or perhaps she and I established a new normal for myself. I am rooted at peace and able to thrive within the home she and I have built. When my son was born, I felt truly human for the first time. Uh, seeing resemblances in his features anchored me into the world in a way I I still can't really fully articulate. Marriage provided me with a sense of belonging that sort of served to armor me armor me psychically in social situations. And the ability I have to be honest and uncensored about my anxieties with her gave me the strength I needed to separate myself from my um, thoughts. Uh, I remain in contact with my adoptive sisters at times, I remain in contact with my adoptive parents at times, Um, but I've learned a great deal about belief, about how ideas and storytelling around those ideas can sort of generate a larger public awareness, trends, and even manipulate group decisions. I, I find that my ability to adapt quickly to meet needs to be you know a troubleshooter came from watching my adoptive father be a troubleshooter solving technical issues in the mechanical level is not dissimilar to solving like conceptual issues or user experiences Um, and that makes me needed and being needed gave me a sense of security and without that sense of security my identity just unravels displaced i am at the mercy of the darkest thoughts, right, the phantom pains of my past. Getting all of this account out has itself wrought some havoc on my body. When I initially wrote this script, my hands, in particular, my back grew erect, um, writing all of this out. I grew impatient and restless while I was working on this, and um, Remembering these pains and struggling to remember other pain, all of it is sort of raw and aching and never satisfying, so I'm always left with some puzzles for which I may never have solutions. And where I have solutions, would I still be left with decisions? Like what does it mean ultimately is the decision I must bear at every stage of the process of search? I must make meaning for myself of what I know in the moment in each moment along the way. And watching other adoptees go through televised reunions, I'm always curious what they do after the cameras are gone, once the producers have left. I don't know how to engage with my biological family by watching these televised reunions. I don't know where the word family even means within that context. What I've learned is that a life of dinner parties has prepared me to be personable, even with strangers, and I have the added benefit of knowing enough about the areas to find points of commonality when we meet. But my family is my wife and son. I'm a father. Um, Her family has adopted me into it willingly, if you will, as son-in-law, through a normative social bond my marriage, and I can relate to them as such and take cover when needed through my wife's intervention. But I'm still confronted with a lack when I speak with my son. He is my blood, but I know there is a gap, a void. He has that lack as well. It isn't as pronounced, but trauma inherits itself onward, a parasite that carries it across at the germline. The traits of anxiety, of patrilineal curses, if you will, they're as much a legacy as hair thickness or troll toe. My son has a measure of my trauma from my adoption, tainting his nature. I hope he will find peace and love enough to soften that hardness. For me, what I experienced was exacerbated by the myths that underlie the Christian mental hospital institution and adoption industry. Whole industries exist that are framed by desired expectations, not science. I cannot believe, in retrospect, that the therapist in the mental hospital would have focused on my relationship to God because of my interest in occult ways of knowing, rather than discuss or focus my therapy on my obsession with my adoption. Yet, from another angle, of course my adoptiness was overlooked. Adoption has been used to fulfill a market pressure, and the unique needs of those adoptees cannot be filled or would acknowledge the damage the industry has done. As long as my problems were rooted in my behaviors or outside forces, the myth of adoption as a universal good is maintained. What does it mean to be a father? I have found my biological father. My first father, right? But I'm not sure that he's my dad, per se. He's a wonderful, and we've become increasingly close. But being a father is a hands-on affair. Aye! And... I take a quick break, because my cat has moved everything around from where we were reading. (laughs) And so... I had to reset my my situation, and refine my spot on the script, but I love my cat, I don't mind, and I know that it's in here somewhere. <laughs> I have written a great deal um, on this script, and it is quite long, but yeah. I apologize for the pause. So, I have found the spot where I wanted to get back to. Just like I found my biological father. Um, as I was writing this particular part of the script I, I had a, my son was closing in on his ninth birthday. he's now nine. Watching him grow um, brought me closer to myself to my own humanity and as I carried him as an infant <laughs> I uh, learned how to move with him. I learned how to hold him in my arm properly. I learned how he fit against myself. Uh, As he grew older and continued holding him, my body changed with it. Uh, My arms became stronger so I could hold him longer. My left arm ultimately became uh, damaged probably by holding him too long, but I was able to lift and carry him for a very long time on my left arm. Uh, when I got to the point when I was 40 and I realized I wasn't gonna be able to hold him as long, that was the point where I, you know, tattooed his name on my left arm. And it sort of like you would put a name on a bench, a memorial bench. So I carried him as a toddler. And then I felt sort of stirrings in my own memories of that time in my life. I couldn't recall, but I could sense the memories sort of behind a veil or call. Being a father and doing everything I could as he grew to match my wife's efforts in child care brought a sort of realistic aspect to my fantasies about how my life could have played out otherwise. Uh, Raising a child was hard work. Particularly an excitable, anxious, overly experiential child full of difficult questions. Um, I personally wear people out around me. I wear out their patience, their passion, their knowledge. I did this to my adoptive parents. I've done it to several of my lovers. I've done it to my past roommates. It is only my age that has slowed my furious and unrelenting mind, my age and my wife, Who has learned to weather the storms of my mind and knows how to offset the damage, divert the anxieties before I spiral out as I once did when I lived alone. You know, she was my shelter and has become my foundation. I deeply respect the dramatized relationship that Randall has with his wife in at least season four, three, four of uh, the NBC drama, This Is Us. Is not dissimilar to someone who's sensitized sensitized to trauma and to anxiety. Um, uh, my wife is mother of my son. She is the link that brought me back from the sort of liminal shadows where I lurked for most of my life. Uh, becoming a father has deepened my understanding of myself. I learned what I was capable of doing. Um, I learned how to wake up and walk through the house before even becoming fully conscious when I heard my son cry out in the night. I learned how to change a diaper, clean a crib, give a baby a bath, and install a car seat. And all of these lessons changed me for the better. They made me human. There is a phrase that I first encountered in Betty Jean Lifton's book, Journey of the Adopted Self, the term genetic bewilderment and cumulative adoption trauma. Becoming a father, meeting someone, finally, who looked like me, even if it took a few years to really become a parent, was a kind of anchor. It landed me alongside the rest of the mortal world. I felt, weirdly, that I had been born alongside him in some way. And as for the cumulative adoption trauma, this moment of becoming a father presaged a new era in my life as a recovery. I became aware of memories that were liminal memories that I could recall because I could see the universality of experience in my son. Uh, So flying him through the air, I could recall my adoptive father flying me through the air. Dreams I remember having about flying that always seemed linked to the need to urinate in the night suddenly made sense when I picked my son up in the middle of the night and fly him to the bathroom lest he wet the bed. Paths... back to memory become ways to untap the pressure of those moments. Uh, So my son's birth and my own maturation in the role of his father gave me the psychic resilience I needed to do the weird hard thing of finding, then meeting, my biological father. I am not done recovering. I may be a recovery of sorts for the rest of my life. But I have found a balance between the hand I was dealt in life and my Relentless need to know the truth about myself. Hmm. Seeing the place where I grew up, seeing the fresh coats of paint and the rusted iron, the widened streets once lazy in the summer of the late 80s of my mind, that was jarring enough. But to tour that Twin Falls town alongside my biological father pointing out buildings that deepened our stories to each other that experience was a kind of holy inbreaking of meaning my life deepened in that day as i visited twin falls with him and his wife and i with my wife and son what i'm sure outwardly looked normal if oddly prosaic five people visiting the canyon and bridge while taking pictures and visiting gift shop was internally an epic struggle to find the right words, um, present the right face, find the right moment to engage, to relax, to be passionate, to step away. Being a father, the normalizing aspect of fatherhood, was a way to connect with him, and he was well-versed in being a grandfather, having many other really wonderful grandchildren. And my son, he knows how to be a grandson, and he found my biological father quite suited to being a grandfather. The roles were all there, and easy to understand and perform. And so while there was no shared history, we all somehow found a way to interact, dance through in a performance we knew very well. And from the outside, that would have appeared perfectly normal. It was only in conversation that the facade dissolved into sort of an entirely new narrative framework. Um, our relationship meeting and the story about it was tried out a few times in conversation and we met more and more of his extended family to whom the story was related um, I am unquestionably his son A visual anchoring as complete, moving to me as the birth of my son was as far as genetic similitude a depressuring of that genetic bewilderment that Betty Jean Lifton wrote about I find solace in my own rituals, my family life, and engaging with other adoptees online because it's through those conversations with those people that I and others will be able to articulate the uniqueness of these experiences of meeting someone. Like, for all its flaws in its first few seasons, This Is Us does give a narrative map, a dramatic framework. Randall's experience is masterfully performed by Sterling K. Brown to begin with and, and the accuracy of the transracial adoptee experience that begins in season four is to the credit of the writers finding articulation, find a way to control narratives with adoptee voices as recoveries rather than just adoptees will help all adoptees recover ourselves and in doing so we'll connect with each other Um, adoptees are a tribe of rejects and outsiders, or so it seems to me at least, and I'm happy to be counted a part of that sort of oddball tribe. I know I earned my scars. It is strange to me that I never asked my birth mother if she had a name in mind for me yet, or if my birth certificate has my, if you will, real name, of which I remain unaware, but I've always been drawn to the name Elliot for whatever reason, and I am curious who that Elliot Harper kid would have grown up to be or where I'd be now in that other world, that universe next door. And to be clear, this isn't an idle thought. This is a constant edge, and always already fantasy in progress peeking around the subtext of interactions. I wonder if this is bleed-through from nearby alternate timelines or slippage between universes. Daydreams like this, being lost in consciousness, is a way to subtly drift towards a possible clue toward my true Presents past are ways to process these confusions and misremembered experiences, but there are traps inherent in obsessive fantasizing. I mean, you know, focus on any given nugget of information long enough, and eventually an overactive mind will link and loop it in all manner of false flags and mixed signals, creating conspiracy theories that fall apart under logical scrutiny. One can only teeter out on the edge of what if for so long before all manner of belief becomes malleable. Everything becomes suspect. I sought fulcrums, uh, constant consequences, worlds where stability and reproduction manifested according to rules I could understand. I was drawn to web layout and presentation, information architecture, because of these principles. But that's a sort of byproduct of my need to have mastered principles of reproduction um, however, secondary that may be to rebirthing myself in my own terms, which is the underlying drive. I mean, it sounds like bizarre, but my wife and I ultimately bonded because we were both watching Battlestar Galactica and talking about Cylons queering the need for reproductive processes, like this this notion of rebirthing, of uh, <laughs> same thing that you see in the replicants and Blade Runner. These these notions that seem science fiction in the way that we represent them are fundamental to, I guess, adoptee psychology. So staying conscious of these kinds of dark psychological structures is exactly the same kind of muscle it takes to keep a foot elevated for days after a surgery. Um, The the trauma is the key. It's the trauma that is pre-verbal, locked behind the fogs of false and non-memory, exists as like a shaking a fist clenched through my lower spine so that frozen trauma the frozen time is sort of anchored there at my core physically navigating that when it hits as a frozen moment breathing through that sensation means being awake but distant i'm disassociated from body in those moments almost back and above the body and my consciousness is writing. I, I'm not mentally disassociating in those moments, but physically. Um, I am an adopted person. By negating all of my otherness as adoptee, I am isolating myself within a tiny community that lacks central cohesion. And as a human being, conscious of my own relative privilege, it's inherently disturbing to think that I could swamp out more eloquent, perhaps less visible adoptees, those stridently more urgent stories to tell, seeking their personal histories for urgent medical needs. A kidney, perhaps bone marrow, a rare blood type, or any of a thousand countless number of reasons. Um, I mean, still, that is part of why I sent out the DNA kit to Heritage, a a sketchy startup in Texas. I have nothing itself to lose. I must lose this lack of knowing, if you will. The missing elements, every bit I lock into place provides a bit more stability, a sense of knowing self, even if it's not true knowledge, bits that help me guess what might come next. Um, as an adoptee, you're always wondering, am I going to have heart trouble, diabetes, ALS, dementia? How will it end, right? Should I live out my days without an accident or a violent end? And like so many other adoptees, will I die of cancer? Will I have caught it sooner if I knew my biological father's whole family had a history of it, whatever it might be? Some multiverses are longer lived in than others for adoptees. Uh, I guess doing doing the DNA testing kind of collapses those multiverses into a result, a thread, an answer, or at least data of some sort. There are all sorts of holes and gaps in these webs of life that the services are mapping with our spit and shreds of skin cells. Um, The fact that adoptees can use DNA services to route around laws designed to prevent families from reuniting is a bug, not a feature of these services. It's an overlooked end run around an abusive legal situation. But DNA is only so much. It's a piece of the puzzle of the adoptee, a part. It's not the whole. The searching, the struggle to search, the early awareness, the late discovery rage, all of this is a set of experiences that are unique To the adoptee, the kept, don't get to experience this railroad of emotionality. Um, My experience, which is both unique and bounded by privilege, is inherently normalized by similar yet unique experiences of other adoptees. I am understood and understand people who were adopted or grew up within foster care um i am adopted but i self-identify as an adoptee and i am an adoptee because it is my tribe as opposed to irish or swedish or spanish or british or french or german i'm a white cis het adoptee a foundling a disconnected changeling too traumatized to cry when i was first found i was a cuckoo who outgrew his early murderous instincts by the age of three, after which my adoptive parents got themselves another traumatized adoptee who served as my sister in family photos. Uh, We grew close in retrospect and played together for a long time until the move to Kansas, and Kansas broke apart my adoptive sister and I, and I am lucky we have repaired our relationship only recently. I have spent far too long struggling with trauma that I did not recognize as trauma. At first, I thought it was spiritual because of my upbringing. Then I thought it was chemical, something I could unlock, perhaps, with the right combination of vitamins, drugs, and herbs. Most nights, I stay awake as late as I can so that I do not sleep long enough to have dreams. My dreams are almost always restless or nightmares, and when I have nightmares, I call out and at times thrash about or I awaken in terror, uh, frozen in place and unable to move for what feels like hours. Um... I've learned my ways around that. As I've aged, these moments happen a little less often. But I also have found ways to prevent the dreams from taking hold. Um, I was on a medication to reduce the nightmares for a time, but that had unpleasant side effects. Although now I find using CBD oil to be a more effective, less unpleasant alternative to um, what I think was called prazosin. My problems come and go. My emotions are generally level. My attitude about life generally positive. It is often the sheer juxtaposition of relentless night terrors against a daylit world without apparent stresses or triggers that led me to seek medications that could prevent the dreams. Even worse, I never recall those instances. The sleep I disrupt is my wife's rest rather than my own. I don't remember the dreams that just her sleep, um, and prevent me from sleeping fully. All too often, she shakes me awake and I fall back asleep, leaving her unable to pass out for hours. Um, I guess when I was younger, the nightmares lingered with me longer. I remember them as fear, like pure and intense, that resolved as fear of violence, uh, primarily dismemberment of assault. Um, all too often, I would awake in a panic, convinced that if I moved, I would be taken, attacked, and dis- dismembered, bits of my body chopped apart. The memories are never of the dreams themselves, but of lying awake, afraid to move, um, waiting for dawn to come before I was attacked. started when I was five, five years old, or maybe even younger. One of the first Star Trek episodes I saw, one of the first that aired when the local NBC affiliate began running them in syndication late in the afternoon, was The Menagerie, which featured tall, bald aliens with huge heads, their brains seemingly visible. These aliens used telepathic powers to manipulate the human crew, Um, and they frightened me beyond all reasoning. The memory of those aliens mixed with my fears of being taken in the night powerless to resist. Um, I would lay in bed terrified of every creak of the walls, every click in the night. As I grew older, the dreams changed. I no longer feared being taken in the night, Uh, a fear that seemed anchored in my abduction and adoption as an infant, probably not abduction by alien presences. But my fear was not a fantasy, uh, but a memory, like being played out over and over, As I grew up in the early hours before dawn. Later, the dreams were vacant, sort of blank holes in time. My dreams are missing, or at least my ability to recall them. Occasionally, I'll have a normal dream, or even a prophetic one, and recall it in a normal or um, sort of an an emphasized way. But what I can glean from these terrors is that I am horrified and tortured. I have flashes of panic about the loss of fingers, teeth, and limbs. I recall steep drops, cliff sides, bridges collapsing into chasms. I think these are the nightmares that awaken my wife in the night and the reason she must shake me awake. I want to talk a little bit about the television show Legion that aired on FX, the FX network. At the time of me putting this whole thing together, you can watch it all on uh, Hulu if you have a subscription. You know, while the films Superman 1981 and Star Wars A New Hope, the 1978 film, are sort of gloriously turned on their head in producer and filmmaker James Gunn's Guardian of the Galaxy films, Volume 1 and 2, which are 2014 and 2017, and the sort of horrific send up Brightburn 2019, which was written by his brothers. To really talk about the bad adoptee, I want to talk about David Holler in Legion. I think it's really interesting that there's so many similarities between Scanners, the 1981 film, and Legion, the television show. Um, But while all of these, Superman particularly, deal with the empowered adoptee male Uh, but getting to that empowered adoptee male from different narrative frameworks sort of showing the different faces of the empowered adoptee shading from acceptable to sociopathic or lawful good to chaotic evil if you'll pardon the sort of AD&D reference They all deal with the bad adoptee, expressed as not simply a chaotic destructive force, but as a literal destroyer of worlds. Um, Legion is the best uh, to this point in television. There are a number of examples of a world-ending adoptee in media, but the one I feel most passionate about is Legion. It's uh, three seasons, 27 episodes. Um, David Holler is the biological son of Charles Xavier And the adoptive son of the Hallers. And he finds himself caught between multiple competing entities There are initially two organizations, institutions um, If you will There's the mutant hunting branch of the government Which seeks to imprison and kill mutants deemed dangerous Too dangerous to exist It's called Division 3 uh, This is set in the Marvel Universe But not the Marvel Cinematic Universe It's as we discover by the end of the series, a Marvel alternate universe, part of the multiverse. Um, the other institution is Summerland in the first season. It's a secret of retreat where mutants can come to terms with their abilities and help each other. David is also caught between his own mental illness and an indwelling parasitic entity, the Shadow King, that has been warping his perceptions of reality as well as his own memories of childhood. David's journey in the series moves beyond the anticipated portrayal of world-breaking adoptee and becomes a story about an individual who undoes their own timeline. It is a complicated, breathy, artistic, and intricate piece of television, tackling ideas that are groundbreaking and unexpectedly moving throughout. Um, Musically until Pose, it was FX's most musical and artistic visual piece. I mean, I cannot speak for all viewers, and clearly many viewers were shed during the transitional second season, but I personally was glued throughout the three seasons, only missing one episode on initial airing. Uh, I appreciate the programming that somehow makes it onto the FX networks in general, and Noah Hawley's writing and work on the Fargo series for them is also fundamentally compelling. So I knew when this program was first announced that Holly's dive into Legion story with full blessing of Marvel was likely to be mind bending. Um, But I did not expect to become so emotionally overwrought that I would weep multiple times throughout the series, including three separate moments during the final episode. Uh, I've watched this multiple times in part to understand exactly how. I keep finding myself weeping so furiously. Um, Also understanding how the third season tied off all the threads, which seemed impossible the way the second season unraveled. Uh, Depicting all the relationship traumas of ad hoc families, essentially hitting every single emotional mark uh, of the birth triad. Amazingly. By the end of the third season The healthy versions of interpersonal relationships Coming into alignment While the trauma was addressed and redirected So what seemed like demonic forces Ripping apart time Are revealed to be guard dogs Pets really Protecting reality from the side effect of David's quest Time itself Or rather uh, Time's fashion conscious daughter Becomes swept up in David's desire To undo himself with energized meditation He's presented as the enlightened leader of his own clearly sex and drug influenced cult with Lenny, his right hand, pursuing her own dreams of motherhood with her close to term wife in season three. The story wraps with the forces of division closing in on him. And so he develops a strategy to unmake the events of the past and prevent his adoption. Um, For the purposes of thinking about this as I write about it discuss it or talk about it, I have to displace displace both my own enjoyment of this television show as a program and strip out all of the action of the show and trace sort of only David's relationship to his adoption. Um, It's helpful if you've seen the show because as I name the characters, it's easier than me giving the pretext for their presence. But the Shadow King, the parasite that we uncover, he uncovers in season one, becomes articulated as an entity known as Farouk throughout season two. And the relationship that David articulates with Farouk is in season three, a conversation that is essentially one would have with one's adoptive father. Uh, Farouk, the parasite in his mind, is the institution of adoption. and sort of represented in a similar way that Philip Covington is represented in Warlock III. Um, He's identified early on as a parasite in season one, uh, but the conversation in season three the conversation David articulates with Farouk is about having been an adoptee, about the fulcrum between being a victim and being a villain, an instigator. David identifies Farouk early on as the parasite, but in doing so, he also discovers he is adopted. Uh, the realization is twinned, uh, illustrated literally in Season 1, Episode 7, where David's legionness, ness his many selves, are revealed as the swaying force in his own self-defenses, similarly in Season 3, Episode War. Uh, Sid, his girlfriend, or ex-girlfriend's consciousness swap with David in that episode, results in the swarm of Davids in his body that overtake her control of his body and powers. So David's mental illness is as powerful as his mutant abilities within the story world of the show. Uh, But it is separate from the problem, which is his adopted experience. So his mental illness is very carefully articulated as a discrete aspect than his adoption. The adoption experience is framed as an experience with a false self overlaid on his memory and his interactions with others. So trying to medicate this away led to outbursts of rage, which led to problems with law enforcement and his family, which led to the discovery of his power, ultimately leading him to attempt suicide. Adoption, the parasite, the adoptive father that's baked inside his body, and by the end of the series, in some way, the hero of the show, Farouk, who becomes a guardian angel, um, guided David the villain to his destiny undoing all he was and all that was to prevent the adoption from taking place by the end of season three. It's quite a poetic nod. I mean, I cannot stress how deeply moving I find this show, Um, moving enough that I know I cannot, you know, cleanly write about it without having taken multiple passes on the subject matter. Legion took on the adoptee's search for self as a story that could be exploited within the Marvel framework of time travel multiple dimensions um, astral travel telepaths and omega-level mutants Um, Of particular interest is those mutants are the ones classified as having world-ending powers, right? Throughout the seasons, David is continuously referenced as one who has world-ending abilities that he can alter reality In the second season, we see the different lives that David could have led, the different realities that would have resulted from his abilities, how they expressed, depending on how he applied himself. We see him driven mad, we see him and Lemmy clearly living the billionaire lifestyle, all before being snapped back to the pitiless existential struggle between Farouk and himself, with the institutional forces of the different division levels as backdrop. Episode 1, Season 1 caught my attention, but it was Episode 7 of Season 1 that struck me so deeply I rewatched it multiple times, crying, weeping, that first viewing, as David puzzled his way out of the adoptee fogs with the use of blackboards and lots of astral chalk drawings. Um, Admittedly, the show's aesthetic is absurdist, dreamlike, and very, very beholden to psychedelic narrative trappings. The structure of the story itself seems sensed by a character who is shown outside of time, existing like an astral stowaway, a doomsday-prepper telepath who refuses to live in the real world and has disassociated details of his own life to the point that he aggressively assails any attempt to bring things into his conscious awareness. There's musical numbers that seem ripped from television shows like cop rock, um, adoptees are often struggling with emotional and mental content that is so painful that keeping it even in one's mind requires effort. And so disassociative moments expressed in musical dance somehow fit into the fabric of the show Legion, right? The mind is always trying to slip the details of one's life back into the woodwork, into the wallpaper, into a dance routine, uh, into dramatic lighting or expressive sound effects. Pain that exists but lurks outside of conscious awareness, still sapping the strength and vitality from interactions with others. Um, An awkward association with time itself. There's a character named Oliver. He says in episode nine of season two, I sense this is a conversation about time. I try to never have conversations about time. He seeks to remain in the present, even when the present is filled with horrible things, because he is unwilling to face the past, to face the moment the world became doomed. Um, ultimately, he and the character played by Gene Smart, who is a, just a, a national treasure, clearly one of the best actors of our generation, when he and his wife are reunited in this story, he rediscovers his love for her, and they live in the extended eternal moment for as long as they can in love together. Even raising Sid, the character Sid again, so that she can rediscover her own truth, heal her own self as their adopted daughter in this sort of astral space-time. The, the, the actions that were deliberately placed, that the characters move through, you know, at some point, I just wish I could sit down with Noah Hawley and understand how he put this story together, how much he understood about the adoptee and recovery experience, because these subplots, all of them, articulate all this different detritus of the adoptee experience. Uh, Lemmy and her wife seek to have a child, only to watch that history like, be stolen from her, driving her mad. That's how we see Lemmy leave the narrative. She drives her out of the narrative entirely in what feels like another mirroring of the birth mother experience. Yet also, as Lemmy was not the one pregnant, the adoptive mother cheated from the real mothering by the demons of time in season three. Lemmy's arc is truly tragic as her pain and presence ends long before the final results play out. She was always the expression of David's id And when he is seen as the destroyer of worlds, in a brief section of episode 10 of season 2, it is Lemmy at his feet who writhes amongst the bones of his victims. Lemmy is his anarchic cheerleader preparing the world for his rise to power. Firing the shot that triggered the first confrontation between David and Fruk in episode 11 of season 2 of Legion. Um, if she had still been a factor in his cult in his life at the end of season three, David would likely have been able to murder Farouk in the past. This would have similarly undone the world and similarly protected the infant David by undoing adoption. But would there have been a lesson learned if that had been the case? I mean, seeing Farouk brought to tears, uh, I'm spoiling the very end of this. I've watched it so many times that to me that this is as real a myth as Moses freeing the slaves, but seeing Farouk brought to tears by understanding the trauma he had done as a de facto adoptive father and realizing the pain of it, the gift of empathy undoing the demon he is, this was a more powerful story and much better executed than any other narrative on the adoptive experience I'd seen previously on television at that point. I mean, fortunately, I doubt it will be the last of the great shows. Um, I think the birth mother experience that's being expressed in the narratives of the Handmaid's Tale are stunning and way too raw for me directly to experience. Uh, niche television scripting is fast becoming the predominant factor for streaming services and television that articulates a lived personal experience can move audiences to share those stories within their own private worlds. So streaming services bringing narratives into pockets and off of televisions, if you will, and broadcast television is altering alongside this evolution in content. Um, writers are being real about raw, rough experiences, and writers' rooms are filling up with people who can speak to their lived experiences. So if Legion and, you know, Andy Mack and This Is Us can get in front of audiences, there's even better shows coming. Uh, I can't imagine what kind of mastery we will see down the line from people like Ann Sweeney who look closely at lived experience and then help people narrativize it. Uh, Legion is a marvelous introduction to a different, caring, very self-aware Professor Charles Xavier and his use of mental powers in the final episodes of season three was merely a contrivance to get to the meat of his purpose on screen, right? His heartfelt apology to David for having given him up for adoption in the first place. As of this writing of the script. I had watched the scene twice, and each time i had been reduced to gasping, shuddering sobs. Crying as I watch television I'm trying to watch for pleasure is a complicated experience, says man. I think. I want to speak publicly about how important I find this program, Legion, but lauding it by exclaiming I'd been reduced to a blubbering emotional wreck thanks to Noah Hawley's narrative framework on a comic book character seems like a tough thing to summarize in an Instagram post. I'm not gonna take a selfie of my face shining with tears. That's not gonna achieve the results I feel are warranted. Um, All cathartic moments are private, right? Even the ones that happen with other people. These experiences don't translate, they're ineffable. Um, But I do think that the story that is there that weaves its way through the seasons in Legion teaches viewers a few basic truths about the adoptee mind. The King of Shadows, uh, Season 1's villain and Season 3's hero, I think, is the articulation of the fears of the adoptee. He rides the mind like a straitjacket. He keeps David's focus on specific tasks to control David, but never to any final end. Um... By the series ending, everyone is frustrated with where David's ended up, even Lemmy. Farouk is disgusted with David, and abandoning him for a different, ostensibly better telepath at the end of season one was as emotionally devastating for David as losing a sister to the new incarnation of Lemmy. Um, it represented a break from his past, a further distancing from the self he should have been if he were never adopted. For him to return to the past to track down his parents, then confront Farouk, was in a sense to demand justification for the abandonment as well as for the torment he had experienced. And in retrospect, the fact that Farouk never seemed to lead David to take power. He was never able to work in concert with David that the entire parasitic period was one of blackouts where Farouk ostensibly pursued power in some way but never shared power, never sought upkeep for David's own body or basic hygiene, and that David bounced from therapy to institutional setting, clearly nowhere near the seats of power that Farouk seemed to desire, is interesting. I'm certain some of the tears shed by Farouk in the final episode were for himself, right? Bound to live out two decades in a body without the sensual lifestyle to which he had long been accustomed, as we are led to believe. So my favorite moment of the entire show comes in episode nine of season two. David, at that point, has been sent by a time-traveling Sid to help Oliver, who is being controlled by Farouk. David's growing awareness that he is crazy, even without Farouk, that adoption, even outside of its grip, has still left a scar, is paired with his deep love for Sid, his empathy for the pain Oliver is experiencing as a victim of the same parasite he'd experienced, and a series of film dissolves overlaying interpretive dance that create a throbbing experience unlike anything else on television that year. Legion took absurd risks, and while it sometimes became slow and gruelingly plodding, other times it created these layered multi dimensional narratives, backed up by just whip smart dialogue, talented actors, who held the camera without flattening the moment. I mean campy moments exist throughout. And this has all the earmarkings of a show designed to be watched under the influence of vaporized drugs. No effort is made to tie in the mutants with existing costumes other than to establish in the first few moments of episode 10, season 2, that David Holler does not look at all that much like his four-color counterparts in the comics. His balls of light, his ability to manifest multiple selves in astral spaces is consistent, but even the mental difficulties he faces in the show are significantly different from the mental manifestations that appear throughout his comic history, um, and because the show is squarely focused on his adoptiness, the mental difficulties he wrestles with, literally in many cases, are the same script we see Farouk narrate for him. The delusion the narrator hints at in episode five of season two, the narrator being the voice John Hamm, um, uh, the delusion that frames all of David's post-adoption identity. He's no good, he's unlovable. He was given away because he's wrong, tainted, and broken. David's repeating this in his head, wearing it like a mask. This assault on himself is always happening, but locked away behind closed doors in his mind. Visually, that's how we are seeing it. Throughout the seasons, we catch glimpses of David's many selves, often questioning or berating him, the central him, for the choices he's making. The fact that he is in pain, struggling with his choices, does not absolve him of wiping Sid's memory than having sex with her once she's forgotten how angry she was with him in one episode. He knows he's lost her and admits as much in that final episode of the series. She confirms this, and it is the unforgivable, unpardonable sin that likely lead to David's decision to literally undo himself through, again, this energized projection this astral force through time. Uh, The institution of adoption, as metaphor, serves to provide a purpose for the struggle, but ultimately it is David who is both antagonist and protagonist. His search for purpose in the pain and trauma, ultimately attracting the attention of the universe itself, who acknowledges the pain of Sid, David, and the rest of Division. When daughter time tells her it did mean something, that that nothing of value is lost. You know, I start weeping even in retrospect, in reflection. The adoption of David began a life of trauma that was externalized in the character of Farouk, who ultimately came... To love David as his own son, having shared a life alongside him. And the knowledge of the pain of that life as an adoptee was the catalyst to undo the pain. (sighs) Articulating the wisdom of the pain granted resolution. Gave David the final confrontation with his biological father before dissipating into the ether. The option no longer to take place and his sins, his struggles and the damage he brought to the world and the people whom he tried to love is now negated, non-existent. Legion brings me to tears more so than Scanners 1981 or even Stranger Things, the series on Netflix. Legion brought me to tears many, many times throughout the course of the 27 episodes that made up three-season run on The FX networks. Uh, The first time I cried was in the first episode, and I was surprised by my emotional response and somewhat confused, almost blindsided. Uh, Adoptees are certainly aware of the emotive triggers that can be latent in media that can catch you in just such a way that you gasp at a ruthless turn in the representation of a character that it alters your own self-awareness. Right? Television used to catch me off guard. I Weird moments in shows like Cop Rock where suddenly you're seeing a guy selling babies in song, or the first season of Heroes when adoptee representation was concerned, but I'd become immune to it, or so I believed, until Legion aired, as far as it hitting me right there in the gut. So thanks for listening to me reminisce about a television show I loved. My name is Jeffrey Wessonro. I was born in Twin Falls, Idaho, in the Magic Valley, at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center on April 15th, 1974, a little before 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And by 5 p.m. or 6 that day, I had met my adoptive parents. I've kind of been dealing with the puzzle ever since.